Hey gang, thanks for listening to another edition of Book Club. This time, I am so excited to present this book to you. Honestly, I am. We're talking to author Bill Kopp. Bill put out a book recently called Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of New Wave. If you don't know, 415 Records was started in the late 70s in San Francisco by Chris Kanab, primarily Chris Kanab and Howie Klein. Howie, I'm going to tell you more about. You may know that name. He's still a bigwig in the music industry. I may tell you, I'm going to tell you more about him at the end of the episode. Anyway, these guys are in San Francisco. They have ties in the music business. One's a DJ, one's a record store owner. And they start putting out singles by bands that are local to San Francisco that they like. And it starts to take off. Now, it never obviously takes off in the same way that the New York scene with CBGB takes off. But it, they have some, some success locally. And you guys, you know this from the beginning, very, very beginning of our podcast. The whole idea was to shine a light on great, great artists that had a moment but remained somewhat obscure. And this is an entire book about those kinds of bands. It is such a valuable piece of rock history. And we're giving an, an issue of the book away. I'm going to tell you about that at the end, too. Anyway, eventually, they, they don't have huge success, but they start having some success with bands like Romeo Void that you're listening to right here, Wire Train, Translator, Red Rockers. We've had those guys on before. And Howie and Chris sell the, the label to Columbia Records in the late 80s, and everything kind of goes to pot after that. Columbia doesn't know what to do with all these little punk bands, basically. Scrappy little indie artists. And that becomes the end of it. Anyway, Bill documents this history so vividly and so beautifully. And you get to know all these little bands that had their moment. A great single, and that's all there is, you know? This is pre-internet, pre-videos, all that kind of stuff. It would be lost to history otherwise if Bill didn't document it for us. So this is a fantastic book for the biggest music history nerd in your life. And I'm going to give you one at the end of the podcast, okay? So anyway, enjoy this conversation with Bill. Okay, so let's kick this off, Bill. I I mean, I hate to do this to you, but I, I feel like I kind of have to ask the most basic thing ever. Bill Kopp, who are you and why did you write this book? Who am I? Uh, I'm, <laughs> like, why you, you know? Why me? I'm, I'm a music journalist and I've been uh, writing for uh, online publications, print magazines, and my own blog for... 15, 16, I'm not even sure how many years, mm. since the early uh, OOs, whatever we call them, the naughties, I guess. The, there's a bit of a convoluted story of how this project came to my attention. It is essentially, in October of year before last, uh, a, a small label, record label, CD label called Liberation Hall started doing some compilations and reissues of early material that had been released on 415 Records during the period when 415 was unaffiliated with Columbia because they had the rights to that. The rest of it's all caught up in the big mega, mega everything. When those came out, uh, because it was a San Francisco-based story, uh, I pitched a story to my editor at SF Weekly. I was writing regularly for them. Nice. And uh, he gave me the green light. And so I did about a half dozen interviews uh, including one with Howie Klein, one of the co-founders of the label, and uh, Jack Cassidy, who was an SVT, but who most people will know from a couple other bands he was in, Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna, yes. Um, and then I interviewed members of the Mutants 
and a couple and the Papa Pies and a couple other bands from the early part of the 415 era. In the process of doing that thousand word story, doing the research for that, I realized this is a much, much bigger story that I've just sort of scratched the surface of. Mm-hmm. Plus, when I was in college, two of the albums that were really a part of the soundtrack of my college years were Wire Trains Between Two Words and Translator's um, fourth album, uh, Evening of the Harvest. And so knowing that that's how I knew about 415 back when back in the mid 80s. So when all this happened, I thought, gosh, getting to talk to the guys in Translator again and, uh, and digging into some of these other bands would be really, really interesting. So that's how it came about. A bit of a fairy tale story. I pitched the story to uh, Hozak Books in December of 20. And within a day or two, I got it. Yeah, go ahead. When's the book ready? And really? Said, yeah, that's not how it usually works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, on my first book, the, uh, the timeline from book proposal to contract was, I want to say a year and a half, oh you know, yeah. which is much more commonplace. Yeah. Anyway, so that was December of 20. I waited till the holidays were done. And then in, starting in January of last year, I started lining up the interviews. Mm-hmm. In the first 90 days of last year, I did 98 interviews. Oh, goodness. Then, yeah. So th- that was the first quarter of last year. The second quarter of last year, I wrote the book. Oh. So, <laughs> this yeah. is so stealth. I can't <laughs> believe you did this so quickly. Well, you know. COVID and the, the pandemic has yeah. been a horrible, horrible thing in nearly every way imaginable. But there's a very thin silver lining, and that's it. Everyone was home. True. Everyone was available to be interviewed. Yeah. Nobody was on tour. Nobody was at work. Nobody was anywhere. And I had the um, extra added advantage of all of uh, my uh, regular gigs for um Music publications and alt weeklies have been completely fallen through. So I had lots of time. So I was able to do it. Good. Good. I've always felt like San Francisco as a as a the culture of San Francisco, for whatever reason, for being one of the biggest and best cities in the country, just doesn't I don't know that people can really put their finger on what makes what what San Francisco music sounds like, what there's no, to me, like, I, I think about this a lot. There are plenty of movies that feel like definitive New York City movies or L.A. movies or even something like New Orleans. But there's not a definitive San Francisco movie. And I, so when I was reading this book, I was so fascinated because I felt like you were literally breathing life into all of these fantastic artists who had a moment and it almost worked out or it worked out a little bit for a while and just have been sort of lost to time. The natural uh, comparison here would be CBGB, obviously. You know, CBGB is this small local venue, breathes life into this culture. All these great bands come out of the scene and they go on to be huge. And that should have happened at the Mubehi Gardens or however you say it. Mubuhay or Mubuhai, depending on who I am. Yes. Every time time I read that word, I thought... Bill's going to have to tell me how to say this word properly. That's why they call it the Fab Map. because The Fab Map, right. 
that could have happened, but it never did. And so many of these bands are lost to time. What do you think is the, what do you think defines the San Francisco sound? If there is one. Oh, I don't know that there really is one because you take, I mean, obviously the period that I'm covering the, the, the 415 era starts in the, the, you know, about two thirds of the way through the seventies, 78, 79, and goes through about 86, 87. And in that you've got everything from the Papa pies who were doing hip hop and, and grateful dead piss takes to um, a band like, uh, well, the, the nuns who were basically just straight out punk to, um, Oh gosh. I mean, you know, I mean, you take, uh, we, we had ska bands, you yeah. know, we had all kinds of different things going on, uh, you know, the uptowns. So I'm not sure that there was a sound. I think what there was, was kind of a sensibility. A lot of the people involved in these bands, not majority of them, but a significant minority were uh, art school types. Uh, uh, the San Francisco art Institute uh, brought forth a lot of these bands and um, I think that sensibility affected the scene in terms of, of kind of a, an art for art's sake kind of thing. More than a few people I interviewed talked about the provincial nature of San Francisco in those days. And they didn't necessarily mean that in a negative sense, but they meant that, you know, it's, it's hard now because we're so far into the Internet era where all information correct or incorrect, is at our fingertips. Back in those days, if you lived in a city like San Francisco, or in my case, Atlanta, you knew about the New York scene, but you knew about it because you were reading New York Rocker or Trouser right. Press, right. not because there were YouTube videos of what True. was going on or people discussing it in forums. Mm -hmm. And so these scenes in Athens or Atlanta or New Orleans or Syracuse or Austin or San Francisco, wherever you want to name, kind of existed separate from one another. Anyway, that's kind of a long, long. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think that too. Why do you think it is then that we don't, that the San Francisco scene didn't make a bigger cultural or commercial impact? Really, nothing was happening of any broad, in any broad way until Romeo Void came along. It seems like. I think that it comes back to that art for art's sake idea. I think that, and you know, and this is my opinion. I'm not projecting the opinion of, of all the artists I interviewed, but I think maybe in terms of commercial success, maybe they didn't want it enough. Really, I think they were more concerned about self-expression and just sort of you know doing their musical thing compared to the LA scene which was happening at the same time, which uh, did give birth to some more commercially successful acts. And then, you know, we think of LA as a more competitive, a more commercial kind of scene. Take the, take the case of Translator. Mm -hmm. They were actually an LA band. They moved to San Francisco because they, not to get in traffic in hippie terms, but they liked the vibe better. They yeah. thought it was less, less cutthroat and more, artistically inclined so i think that has something to do with it yeah you might be right there was a there was a quote kevin hunter from wire train said and i thought this was so interesting 
it was unfashionable to work too hard in San Francisco. And I wondered if that feeds into the idea, like you were just saying, did anyone want it bad enough? Were they working hard enough for it? Is there a culture in San Francisco that working too hard? We know there is in the punk scene, Billy, you know, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day talks about Gilman and, you know, the, the sense of selling out with becoming popular. Did right. that transpire over into San Francisco too, do you think? Where if a band wanted it too badly or worked too hard for it or seemed too eager that they were laughed at or reduced somehow? Um, that's a great intro to talk about Red Rockers. Ah. I love Red Rockers. Me I too. say I love all of their albums, and I think they're a really, really good band. Me but too. they are kind of a case history of what you're alluding to. When they started out in, in New Orleans, as it happens, not in San Francisco, they were, uh, not to oversell them, but they were the American Clash. They were. You listen to that. That first single and then that first album, which came out on 415, they sound like uh, The Clash, but with vocals that you can kind of understand. And uh, they were very left-wing, very political. They were not the band that was responsible for 415 get in, getting a deal with Columbia. That honor goes to Romeo Void. Mm-hmm. But they were swept along with that and became a 415 slash Columbia band. And when they did, they made a pretty major course correction and became uh, what we, in retrospect, might call an MTV band. Mm-hmm. China is a great pop tune, it is. but I think it, pro- well, it angered some people who liked the early punky stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and then uh, taking things to their sort of logical conclusion the um, the album cover of um, uh, Circus, oh, uh, Schizophrenic Circus. Schizophrenic, yeah, the, the album cover is Schizophrenic cir- Circus. People truly did laugh at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember at the time uh, I was working in uh, the warehouse, the main office of a, of a record, record store chain in Atlanta. And I remember unboxing those records when they came in. And I looked at it and looked at my coworkers and we all just sort of said, those poor bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I've had Darren Hill on here uh, a few years ago, and he would agree with you on that. That was not the right move. You know, Jello Biafra was a longtime friend of the band. In fact, he sings uh, backing, wouldn't call them harmony, sings backing vocals uh, on, the, uh, on the first album right. uh, on a cover of Johnny Cash tune. By the way, he had never heard before yeah. that day. 
Isn't that but, wild? Um, he said that they look like sad clowns in a Fellini movie. And that's that quote that's in the book because uh-huh. that's a great quote. But the thing is, it's a good record. It, is. it just has a, a dreadful cover. Yeah. Yeah. All three of those Red Rocker albums are so good. They're not, they, really are. they, they progress in sound and quality. They're not all American punk like the first one, but do you think now one thing that you sort of, I feel like make clear and you've sort of touched on it even here in this conversation that Howie Klein and Chris Nab, am I saying his last name, right? Kanab. Kanab. I wasn't sure if the K was harder song. Chris Kanab weren't in it to make money. Weren't in it to get rich and stuff like that. And a lot of people say that, but when you talk to people, if you listen to an interview with someone like Alan McGee, who started creation records, Yes. At first, they don't know what they're doing. They think they've heard something. They want to support their friends. They just like music and they want to put it out there. And it's a more fun job than an office job would be or a corporate white collar job. Yes. But eventually you, you, you click into something, you find something that's not already out there. Like probably New York did with the talking heads and Ramones and Patti Smith and all these other bands. But I feel like San Francisco never quite had that moment. Do you think that Howie and Chris look back at that period in their careers and they've gone on to do other great things, but do you think they, did they miss something? Did they not do something they should have? Or do you think that was by design? We just weren't in it for this. They, by all accounts, they were not in it for the money, which as it happens is a good thing because they didn't get it. (laughs) Um, You know, 415 didn't make very much money didn't make much money for the artists. The 415 Columbia deal was as uh, how he got into pretty extensively in our many, many, many interviews was something that he felt he had to do. These bands were on the upswing. They were doing better and better and they needed tour support. They were, you know, traveling the country uh, in station wagons and, and, you know, and, and, flopping on people's couches and to get proper uh, tour support for the bands and, and, you know, bigger budgets for them to be able to make videos and things like that. He had to ink a deal with uh, a major, which uh, in his view, and uh, I, I feel confident in saying this to him was like a deal with the devil. He he knew it was going to end in tears, mm-hmm. but uh it was at the time really the only thing that he could do. Plus he was getting a fair amount of pressure from Sandy Perlman, who at the time was managing either officially or unofficially um, Romeo void. So I think that, you know, they, they really were not in it for the money. They truly did it for the love of the music. Uh, they came, Chris and Howie came from different directions, but arrived at the same place. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as looking back, I think that they would have, hoped for more success for those bands because ultimately they were championing those bands. They, they, you know, they loved this music, you know, um, how he may have liked one band more than uh, Chris did. I know um, as I talk about in the book, nobody, but Howie could understand why until December got it. here. <laughs> Make good sense to me, make good sense to me, I can appreciate obsessive qualities. 
them i didn't know them before reading the book and they were great they were really good they were way ahead of their time totally and very different than all the other punky stuff that's going yeah i I describe them to people and say matt think of depeche mode now add roaring guitars yeah that's until december uh they they literally Mm self-destructed but um cool band really cool band but yeah, so I, I think that, you know, Howie and Chris were champions of those bands and would have liked to see them get more success. A real, real quick example, early on in the 415 story, uh, before the Columbia deal, Warner Brothers pretty much snatched Pearl Harbor and the explosions away from 415. And ultimately, um, well, although Howie wasn't happy with some of what uh, Warner's tried to do, he was happy that he gave the band a much uh, greater exposure. Mm-hmm. Warner yeah. told him then, you know, I, I know you've got you know a, a, a room full of 45s. You can't sell them anymore. And he's like, I'm going to sell them. <laughs> you know, but, um, but yeah, so the, the, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Do you feel like it seems like the way that the, so I should say for anyone, um, who's unfamiliar with the book, which I'm assuming a lot of us are the, the first half or so is um, there's a, each one of these littler bands gets their own chapter telling the story of their sound, how they came together, what they're doing. Now you throw in lots of fantastic photographs, memorabilia, tchotchkes from back in the day. You can really get a feel for what it was like. Those flyers that people are putting up on street lamps and stuff like that. It's great. And then eventually you move into the bigger bands who get multiple chapters like Translator and Red Rockers, Wire Train and everything. It felt to me like the uh, Columbia deal was almost, I mean, it felt like the beginning of the end. It felt like the moment when this cute little boutique fun thing that we're doing goes corporate and becomes something else. I've worked for companies and maybe you have too that became acquired and the leaders stay on for like a year and they, they keep the party line, the corporate party line going, this is going to be great. We're all working (laughs) together here. And it's uh, this is the right home for our, you know, for what we've created here. And as soon as that year is over, they're out and they've made their millions and they go do something else. You know what I mean? And they don't really tell you that that was, they knew that would happen all along, but it felt a little bit like that's kind of what happened here with Columbia. I think it was a lot like that. The only thing I would say that was different was that when Howie left, he knew that was basically going to spell the end. The There was a key man clause 
in uh, his uh, deal with Colombia. And with him gone, the whole thing went up in smoke. As it happened, Wiretrain had broke up and broken up, although they got back together sometime down the line. Translator had broken up, although they'd get back together. Red Rockers had broken up. Romeo Void had broken up. And until December had self-destructed. <laughs> and that was the entire roster. Mm-hmm. So when the end came, uh, it was it's a cliche, but it was with a, a whimper rather than a bang. Yeah. Yeah. And you it was. did not use that phrase in the book. <laughs> Do you think now when I go back and one thing I should say for, um, Normally, when I'm reading a book like this, I like to have to be listening to the music that I of the bands that I'm reading. I read this book on my phone, so that was difficult to do. I know, but uh, it was still great. But there's for anyone who wants sort of a an entry level where to begin on all of this. There's a four one five compilation called "Disturbing the Peace." Coincidentally oh. titled. That's yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. Coincidentally. 415 records colon disturbing the peace. Uh, there's 24 songs, 21 songs on here. It's an excellent kind of summary of some of the f- highlights from a lot of these bands that are featured in the book. The early um, yeah. Yes, especially the early ones. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm curious if you have a favorite song from this period, from the early 415 period. From the early period. Because I know what mine is. Oh, it's, it might be driving by uh, Mm. Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. You know, it's like anything else. It's like, what's your favorite Beatles song? Uh Every day I'm going to give you a different answer. Um, But it might might be driving. What's yours? High Pressure Days by the Units. I just love, it's a fun kind of dancey, upbeat, skittery. I I love it. I've been listening to it on repeat the whole time reading this book.
It's funny, the adjectives you're using are some of the same ones that I would apply to the uh, to the tune that I mentioned. Of course, um, yeah. It's, it's new wavy, but it has this really weird, angular, mm-hmm. jazzy, avant-garde guitar solo that's like atonal scronk, and it's, it's <laughs> right. wonderful. That's right. Of all the bands from the early period, is there one in particular that you think could have or should have made it? Because... The, most of these bands, I got to be honest, as great as they are and as fun as they are, I don't hear a lot of like widespread mass appeal potential in a lot of them. But there's one or two where maybe what would you would you pick? What do you think? I would pick the same one that Howie Klein would pick and Chris Kanab would pick, and that's SVT. That was my pick as well. band had talent to burn and their songs were really good it was really muscular it wasn't exactly what we would now call power pop but if you think of stuff like nick lowe early elvis costello it has that kind of nervy energy and the muscle of hard rock mm-hmm. The uh, SVT really, really, when I asked Howie that uh, a version of the question you asked me, what's the band that you think was the, the greatest mispotential? He said SVT. Yeah. And when that's, I asked Jack, he agreed. That's what I think too. And I wonder if some of that, I, I wonder how much of that has to do with the Jack Cassidy factor. I mean, yes, this guy who's a member of like what the ultimate hippie band of all hippie bands and then he sees, I think, probably, oh, the kids are listening to punk. I should probably get in on this. Uh, where, can somebody want to start a punk band with me? And he finds Brian, who's this, you know, really charismatic, great front man for, a, for a Marnell, I should say, unfortunately passed away. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is Jack's sensibility of like, well, this guy's a pro, so he, we're going to get better producers. We're going to get better sound. We're going to get more professional feeling from them than we would with someone else because he knows what he's doing. Not to take anything at all away from Jack Cassidy, one of the great, great bassists and great musicians um, and great interviews, I will mm. say. Um, but I think, and I think Jack would concur based on what he said to me. I think uh, most of the credit really would go to, to Brian Marnell himself. He was a really, really good songwriter. He knew his way around a hook and he wrote very direct, visceral, 
compact rock tunes. He just happened to have a really, 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 really good bassist. In the earliest days, they were actually called the Jack Cassidy Band. You know, easier to get gigs that way, let's face it. But ultimately, I think uh, Brian was the creative center of that. Although, to a man, that was a really, really strong band. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should talk more deeply about the Fab Mab. That really is kind of, it feels like anyway, ground zero for this, where this scene begins. Yeah. It feels so counterintuitive to think that this, what is it, a Thai restaurant or Filipino restaurant or whatever? Filipino, yes. Filipino restaurant suddenly decides, well, we'll we'll put bring bands in a couple nights a week. And do the patrons of a Filipino restaurant want to hear a band like the nuns on a Monday night? No, I, that's what I, I'm just like, how did these scenes begin? I don't get it. It was a completely, by all accounts, it was a completely different audience that was dining there on Filipino noodles Mm. than was coming back a couple hours later to hear the mutants or the Papa pies (laughs) or, you know, or any of those, or, or um, Joe Allen and the shapes. I mean, you, Mm -hmm. you name it. I mean, it was completely different. It was sort of like, well, we've got this room and nobody's using it late at night. So why don't, you know, here's a way to, um, you know, you know, we're paying for the space 24 mm-hmm. seven. Why not use it for something? You know, these, these kids have this music here going on and <laughs> maybe we should get them in here. And yeah, it was, it was strictly a, a, a business decision. It wasn't any sort of a creative aesthetic decision. Although Dirk Dirksen was for all of his um, very, very abrasive uh, persona was a big, big champion of these bands. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of went that way, but yeah, it's, it's pretty unlikely. I can't think of an equivalent in uh, another city uh, there may be one mm-hmm. but you know cbgb's was not an italian restaurant during the day yeah it's true there's that what's the one that's a um it's a comedy club and it's also a restaurant might be the hungry eye i think there 
There, there's something of a, an equivalent in L.A. with Madame Wong's. Maybe that's what I'm trying to think of. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. The difference is Madame Wong's was part was the ground zero for the pay to play scene mm. of the 90s, which uh, I don't want to write about. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of wanting to write about, how familiar were you with all of these bands in this scene before picking up this book, before choosing to write it? When it came to the 415 Columbia bands, very familiar, except for until December. When it mm. came to the earlier bands, uh, some of them I knew and really liked, like Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. Some of them I knew about and had read about, like the Nuns and the Mutants. And some of them I had never heard of. And um, I think that will be true for a lot of people. But yeah. um, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a thing. I'm a big aficionado of uh, 60s garage, teenage bands that came uh, in the wake of the Stones and the Yardbirds and the Beatles. And there's kind of a, a saying about those bands that they all had one good song in them. Maybe not two, <laughs> you know, but they had one good, sometimes great song in them. And I think that was the case for a lot of these bands too, uh, especially the bands who were compiled on the original 415 compilation, 415 Music, which came out in 1979, 80. A lot of those bands, that was the only thing they ever committed to uh, to vinyl. Yeah. But uh, there's some good tunes on there. Yeah. Something else, too, that I was thinking about is it seemed to me that other than a couple of people, there weren't a lot of people featured in the book who still make a living as a musician. There's um, Steve Barton from Translator is still out there. Great guy, by the way. And then I would say probably um, Alejandro Escovito from the yeah. Nuns is probably the biggest name that it, that's still out there ma- doing it, you know. But I could, you know, like you said, Wire Train's barely around. They might do reunion stuff here and there. Uh, Romeo Void, not you know, nothing. Even De- I always want to say it's Deborah, but I think she says it Deborah. Deborah. Is that right? Yeah. Right. There is one exception, um, oh. and I keep bringing these guys up uh, until December. Adam oh. Sherburn has a band called Consolidated. You're right. And, uh, in fact, Consolidated found its – once I learned the story of Consolidated, and I've had a number of conversations with Adam, I opened the book by talking about Consolidated and how they sort of connect back to 415, even though, even though they're as different as could be. They're sort of industrial hip-hop. Mm-hmm. But um, – very left, more left wing even than uh, Red Rockers were, but um, he's still at it. Consolidated just put out a new album a couple months ago. Mm, really? Okay. Yeah. They're yeah. a band I've always heard of, but I had forgotten that they. I I don't know that I've dug too deeply into their stuff. I want to ask too, from what I if I remember correctly, the first single that Four One Five ever put out was "Everyone's a Bigot" by The Offs. Is that I, right? Yeah, I hope you want 
one's a bigot. The 22 bus If you like nothing They put you down Oh, Blacks are bigots That makes me sad Packing out anyone at Sabag Cause everyone's a bigot Uh-huh, yeah, everyone's a bigot That's right Cause no one's perfect No one Yeah, everyone's a bigot Oh, Blacks are bigots I say whites are bigots You know devils are bigots And reds are bigots that's number two. Oh, what was number one? I believe the first one was uh, the Nuns single. Oh, you might be right. You Well, you're probably right, and Wikipedia is probably wrong because you wrote the book. But when going back, I can't remember, and forgive me what the exact story was, but was it a thing where Howie and Chris thought to themselves, I like this band and this song so much, I'm going to start a label around them? Or was it more of like an impulsive one-off thing that just kind of grew and took over their lives? Do you know what the motivation was behind that? A lot of the bands... You have to remember the, the 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 backdrop for this is that Howie and Chris were radio DJs. True, they were sort of renegade, freeform, uh, late night radio DJs playing music mostly by local bands. And these bands were sending in tapes, and these tapes were you know cassette tapes. These were not demos like we would think of them today. You know, this is like a stick a microphone in the middle of the room, and you know the band just roars into the, the cassette and they they send it in and so it was they were getting so many so many of these submissions and fought and as if they picked through even if they separated the wheat from the chaff there was a lot of really good stuff in there yeah. and uh so uh butch bridges who was a, a record collector and a um he was one of the three founding members although he wasn't actually involved in the label per se he just said to them on, on, a, on a drive one day, said, why don't you guys start a record label? And so they kind of pulled their uh, resources, came up with, uh, I'm not sure how, I forget how much money it was, but I don't think it was even $1,000. <laughs> it was a very small figure. Mm-hmm. And um, they just decided, well, we'll go ahead and we'll press that nun's single. When they did that, uh, the floodgates opened. And so now everybody's, oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. release our record and they thought oh well you know okay enough people are buying this nun's record that we're kind of almost breaking even i mean with our with our day jobs we're keeping our heads above water so let's do another one and then they sort of just sort of, sort of fell backwards into it really there was there was never a plan that's for yeah. sure yeah by the way i just thought of this while you were telling this story that i should insert here so that we don't pass over it Talking about people who may or may not have made a living out of music, the drummer for SVT was Bill Gibson, who went on to fame and fortune with Huey Lewis in the News. So there is, yeah, the original drummer. Yes, true. The original drummer. So I should, I failed to mention that. I didn't want anyone to say, well, you forgot Bill Gibson. Yeah, you're right. So Howie's the DJ and Chris Kanab owns Aquarius Records, a record store in the Castro, right? And the Castro obviously is the, neighborhood that's where harvey milk comes from and in yeah. fact that camera shop that everybody is you know um 
socializing around is next door to the Chris's Aquarius records. Correct. Correct. Okay. I don't, I, I don't know if this is a generalization at all or not, but is, was Aquarius's customer base similar to the, to the camera store's customer base. And if it was, were, was the gay scene in San Francisco at that time, sort of the bedrock or foundational to this scene in any way, or getting these bands up and going? Do you know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. And I, I wondered the same thing. Nothing in my, in my um, interviews suggested that that was really the case. Okay. Um, I, I don't think uh, based on everything that, that I've, I've learned that there, there was, uh, there was anything special about the, um, the, the customer base of Aquarius tied in with the neighborhood. Okay. People okay. went there because that's where the record store was. So I know, you know, how he did DJ at uh, some gay clubs mm-hmm. uh, because when I see that's an, an important, uh, not distinction, but um, elaboration to make is that when Howie was a DJ, but he was a DJ on radio, he was also a DJ at clubs. Right. Whereas Chris was just a, not just, but he was mm-hmm. strictly a, a DJ on the radio with Howie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. When I was reading about that, no, I mean, I wasn't, I know what the Castro is today and what it's uh, legendary for today. And I wondered if that fed into that culture that's so huge and so compact in that part of that town, especially rallying around the next door, the camera store next door, if those people helped to build what became 415 or at least the sort of scene or the start the grassroots population popularization of some of these bands, but maybe that maybe they're not connected. I wasn't sure. That's why I asked. Um, there, there's probably some of that, but it, it didn't, it didn't present itself strongly in, in my research really. Okay. Well, I, um, I think this is a, an, an important piece of historical work that you've done here, Bill. Thank you. Because like I said, these scenes, if they aren't written about, as you were just saying, there wasn't YouTube back in the day. So you had to find out that there were scenes like this in however means you could find them. And here's a book that's pinpointing to music lovers everywhere that may not be familiar. They probably know a couple of the, they probably know the biggest Romeo Void songs. They might know one or two translator. They might know one red rocker. They maybe know wire train. That's about it. But I don't know in most people's minds, if they think that all of these things came from one ground zero in San Francisco built by Chris and Howie and Butch, right? That there's a rich history. And, and I always think, you know, as grateful as I am, I guess that Rolling Stone magazine is the one who told us that CBGB and all that scene and those bands were important. I wish they had spread that wealth to other places because they they would have been the tastemakers that could have told people, could have been telling people for decades, you guys, 415 in San Francisco is important and here's why. And right. they didn't. No one is out there beating that drum and now your book exists to help do that. Well, thank you. Yeah, and they, they didn't. You're right. Um, it, you know, those bands did get some coverage. I, I read about them in a musician magazine way back when, but uh, no, um, it kind of flew under the radar, not yeah. for lack of trying, but yeah. uh, for lack of budget. 
It's unfortunate too, that when you consider Jan Wenner was right there in San Francisco at first, romanticizing and creating the hippie dream of Haight-Ashbury that we all think of today. He moves to New York, obviously, before probably or at, before this scene really gets a chance to take off. But he, if he had remained true and loyal to his San Francisco roots, there may have been more attention, more of a spotlight paid on these bands and these people. And unfortunately, it just got missed. We'll never know. But we do have the music, you know. We do. Um, uh, a lot of that stuff is out of print. I know the original copies of the, the Red Rockers' first LP go for about a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, there's a rumor that it may be in line for a reissue sometime soon. Original copies of the Units album on Four One Five are are pretty pricey. That has been reissued. So one other interesting thing I'll just point out: yeah, uh, there's an archivist named Terry Hammer. And Terry used to go to the, the Mubuhe and a number of other venues back in those days with professional recording equipment and uh, record the shows. These weren't board tapes. These were back of the room, but professional back of the room recordings. And they were broadcast on local radio. Uh, he has a massive archive of those. And um, there are plans afoot for um official release of some of those nice. a lot of a lot of four and five bands are are up for potential uh release of some of that stuff and what's interesting is that uh as as good as the uh, production on those records by a lot of it by david Kahn, incidentally uh is um you listen to those live tapes and they sound a lot like they sounded on their records those really? records are documents of what the bands sounded like for the most part. Some of them might take issue with that statement saying, I don't like the production. I don't like what David Kahn did or mm. on this or that. But um, so th there's a, uh, th there's been some SBT uh, video uh, reissues recently, not nice. reissues, archival releases. So there's, a, there's a, the stuff is still out there. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention Dave Kahn. We should, he was sort of, I got the impression sort of almost like the house producer. He was kind of the guy who's, you know, creating everybody recording and producing everyone's early stuff. And then he goes on to have a great career. Unfortunately, I emailed him recently to come on the show and he was very kind and polite about it, but he said, no, and I'm bummed out about it. Oh, well, I know he's involved in a really big project right now. That's probably why mm. I happened to catch him right before it started. So he said he doesn't like the way he sounds in interviews. He prefers written ones like the ones you did. So wow. uh, whether that's true or not, whatever. David, if you're listening, I would still love to talk to you sometime. Well, so anyway, he's a great storyteller. I believe uh, it. Told, told me some great off the record stuff, which is not in the book, but which <laughs> is endlessly amusing. I believe it. <laughs> Well, Bill, thank you for what you did. I think you've done some important historical work here, and I hope this conversation has sparked the curiosity of at least my listeners, and I hope people get out there. And just, if you're a music lover, it's a can't-lose proposition because it's a fun, delicious, tasty book about music that you may or may not know but will make you happy once you know it. And you've done that. Thank you for doing that, Bill. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun writing it and meeting all these people. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, you bet. 
All right, there you have it. I love that conversation. I love this book, you guys. I, I'm going to get, so as you guys know, we have Patreon supporters and if you are a $2 a month Patreon supporter, a set it and forget it, $2 a month, it puts you in the running to win any and all swag we ever have to give away. Well, we have a copy of Disturbing the Peace to give away. I'm going to announce a winner next Sunday. All right. So this gives you a week basically to, if you aren't already a Patreon supporter and you want this book, join and you may, you may do it. All right. Uh, I'm going to announce the winner next week. Hopefully one of you guys enjoy this book as much as I do. What's also cool is that since talking to Bill, I have also interviewed Howie Klein. And Howie has had a long career in the music industry. When Columbia acquired 415, he went to work for Sire, Warner Brothers. He was involved in that Wilco Yankee Hotel Foxtrot debacle. So we get into a lot of that stuff. It's a really fun conversation, and that should be out hopefully next weekend as a bonus episode. So we talk about 415, but then we talk about the rest of his career, too. I want to close it out with one of the bands, the <laughs> great band, but it remains obscure, that we talked about in this conversation a little bit. It's called The Papa Pies, and this is one of their songs, The Catholics Are Attacking. And I just thought this is a fun way to close out this episode. Some of this stuff in the book, the music anyway, is really hard to find. But there's a really excellent compilation out there called 415, Disturbing the Peace, that is, I've I've been uh, streaming it on Spotify over and over. There's, as I say in this interview, about 21 songs on it. And every band that's featured in the book has a song on that compilation, as well as there's many more in the book. So anyway, if you want to start somewhere, that's probably the best place. Get on your favorite streaming service or buy the CD or whatever, 415 Disturbing the Peace. It's a compilation. It'll tell you all, uh, well, it'll give you an example of most of the bands that are t that we talked about today and that are in this book. Okay? Anyway, huge thanks to Bill. I hope everyone who wants this book will check it out. I'm really excited about it. And uh, join Patreon if you haven't already, and you may win a copy of it for free from me. All right? Thanks, everybody. I'll talk to you later.
Mussolini, he makes the money work. Ooh.